0: Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. Great singing today. Well done. Uh, that got, gets me a little fired up. I kind of got to back it off a notch when I walk up here because I've been singing at the top of my lungs and I'm not going to have a voice. If you've got your Bible with you, let's go to the book of Titus today. This is going to be our last day in uh, our last Sunday in Titus. If you've been with us for a while, then you know that we have been going through a series through the book of Titus. And if you would like to follow along but you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. So if you look around in front of you in one of those chair racks, you can grab one. And if you do not know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We've got people with us every week who, this is the first week where they learn to find things in the Bible. And so if that's you, we're going to be on page 999 of the Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. We're going to be reading in just a few moments the last few verses of Titus chapter 3. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. This is a question that we have been uh, asking throughout this series when we started it several months ago. But I want to pose a version of this question to you again to, to get you thinking this way. The question is this, what does it look like to live The good life. What does it look like. To live the good life. What is. What is a life. Well lived. Not of us. Not all of us will have the opportunity to do this. But if. If we have the opportunity to. Be thoughtful in those few moments. Before we take our last breath. And head into eternity. What are we going to be thinking. As we. Look back on the life that we have lived. What will be our evaluation of it? Now, I, I bet, because many of us are, are good Christian people, that, that, that we would be able to give good Christian answers to that question. What does it look like to live the good life? So I want to, to get beyond some of the good Christian answers that we might be able to ask, and I want you to ask a little bit more of a difficult question of yourself functionally speaking, what is the good life for you? Because we all know what the good life is supposed to be. We all know, or at least have some sort of idea of, of biblically speaking, what a life well-lived looks like. And yet, functionally speaking, we get carried along with our culture, don't we? And the good life, there's the answer that we would give to that question, And there's functionally what it looks like in our culture, which many times equals a life of, one, freedom from pain, and two, the acquisition of things. Now, I'm not saying that there is anything necessarily wrong with either of those things. I don't particularly desire to live a life free from pain. But one of the problems is if that's your goal, you have failed already, It is not possible to live a life free from pain. I wish it was. And many people come to church each week hoping that that's the message that they will hear, that there is some sort of formula that is a cheat code that unlocks uh, God working on my behalf so that I live a life free from pain. And unfortunately, that's not the way it is in a fallen world. But another lie that we fall for is that we can be free from pain and that we will be happy If we get enough stuff, and you would think that we would have example after example after example of why that doesn't work, and yet we think we're going to be the first one. I can handle it. Money and things do not ultimately make us happy. The question that we're asking ourselves is is a difficult one because there's the Sunday school answer that we might want to give and there is what's the functional reality in my life? What am I living for? As I said, this is something that, that we just can get swept away in culturally and unfortunately in our culture we don't give much attention to what it would look like to live life well. But this is something that thinkers in the past have given a lot of attention to. Aristotle, for example, gave a lot of attention to what it would mean to live a good life. He even had a word for it. That word is eudaimonia. It be up there on the screen behind me because people always come up to me and say, can you help me spell that? And I might not be able to spell it. So I spelled it and I looked it up and I put it on there so that you can write that down if you want Eudaimonia is the word that he came up, for that, came up with to describe this, this state. And, and it might be translated simply as happiness, but for Aristotle, it was more than just happiness. For Aristotle, eudaimonia was, was fulfillment or flourishing. And he understood that it was possible to flourish even if our circumstances were not perfect. In fact, if human flourishing requires perfect circumstances, then we will never be able to do so. But how, Aristotle, do we achieve this, this state? And a big part of Aristotle's answer was the cultivation of virtue or moral formation. He saw that the cultivation of virtue within a person was a learned behavior, and he believed that there were four cardinal virtues. He believed that there were virtues of prudence, which has to do with wisdom, justice, which has to do with right and wrong, temperance, which has to do with moderation or self-control, and fortitude or courage. Those were the four cardinal or foundational virtues that one had to develop to achieve this state of flourishing. As I said, throughout human history in different eras and in different cultures, people have given a lot of attention to what it would look like to to live life this way. And this was something that even in the early years of our country was important. I referenced several months ago, and some of you may have been here for for it and some of you may not have been, but I referenced several months ago uh, an article by David Brooks, who is a social commentator, and he notes in this, in one of the things that he wrote, that in the early days of the United States, Americans were obsessed with moral education, in part because they saw that human nature was not fundamentally good, and so there were several educators that included moral formation in the educational ideals of, of their students. So I'll quote one example for you, Noah Webster, the guy who wrote one of the most fascinating books you've ever read, The Dictionary. And just ha- what a thing to do, if I could just pause on that, to just say, I'm going to write down every English word that exists. And then... Do a fair job of it. Anyway, Noah Webster, he wrote this. He says, the virtues of men are of more consequence to society than their abilities. And for this reason, the heart should be cultivated with more assiduity than the head. That word means attentiveness. Think about about what he's just said. The virtues of men are of more consequence to society than their abilities. That seems like the exact opposite of what we would say right now. In fact, if you go to our formational educational institutions, we are trying to create people who are high in skill and ability and have given almost zero thought to moral formation. Now, as Brooks notes in this article, This kind of mindset that Noah Webster and others expressed assumes that matters of right and wrong are not matters of personal taste, right? That there is some sort of objective moral order that exists. Now, to be clear, this moral order was applied very selectively in the foundational years of our country. There were lots of people who did not have this moral order applied to them, so it was far from perfect. But a new way of thinking emerged in the last century based on a, I would say, misplaced optimism about human nature. We had to go through two world wars where we saw humanity at its worst, and when we came out of the, the, these world wars, everybody said, you know what? I don't think humanity is as bad as we thought. That's a strange conclusion out of two world wars. Is something flickering on me? Okay. Okay. Uh, nothing. All right, we'll we'll do that. That's fine. Uh, I was like, it's like that's not nobody's taking pictures, are they? <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter. It, I can, I can. I think I can pay attention, if you can. <laughs> we need to give one of those flashing lights uh, things before before the sermon. Apparently. All right, there's people that are going to try to figure out how to turn those lights off, and if they can't, we'll all survive, we'll get used to it, and we'll forget that it was even flickering, okay? (laughs) After World War II, people started thinking about looking inward for our highest good. And as Brooks says, morality is not something, it, it became, this is the way it became seen, to be seen, morality is not something that we develop in communities It's nurtured by connecting with our authentic self and finding our true inner voice. If people are naturally good, we don't need moral formation. We just need to let people get in touch with themselves. And that became the prevailing way we think about it, culturally speaking, so much so that uh, UCLA has tracked uh, incoming freshmen for several decades now. They do a survey of kind of the thoughts and attitudes of incoming freshmen, and one of the things they saw as early as, as the year 2000 is that 82% of incoming freshmen said that their highest aim in life was wealth. That was their highest good. Now why do I say all of all of this stuff? Why do I I have such a long introduction to this? Well, my point in saying all this is not to advocate for Aristotle's idea of eudaimonia, nor is it to get to some sort of romanticized viewpoint of what our country may or may not have been like in its founding. My point is that all of us are products of culture, that culture is producing a value system in us. And one of the worst things that can happen is that we be people who are not thoughtful of what values are being inculcated in us. To not take the time to ask the the important questions, what does it look like to to have a life well lived? What does it mean to live the good life? And does what I say I answer that question to, is that the functional reality in my heart and in my life? Or am I just living to be free from pain and get lots of stuff? Titus has a lot to say about the good life we've seen as we've worked through the book. And we, as we close the book today, we're going to see one last encouragement to this. From the Apostle Paul writing to a young man that he was mentoring in ministry, Titus. And he says these things beginning in verse 12 of Titus chapter 3. Verse 12 of Titus chapter 3, the word of God says this. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, these final verses of this letter handle a whole bunch of administrative matters. You can see several different people that are brought up. There are going to be people that are coming to replace Titus on the island of Crete, and he's going to be helping Paul elsewhere. Uh, there, are going to, there are talk of which city we're going to do and, and how we're going to support the missionary efforts and, and all sorts of things like that. But the verse that I want to zero in on, once again, is verse 14, because it captures the ethos of the letter. So let's read it again. He, he reminds Titus one last time, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This verse reiterates once again the importance of moral formation and the pursuit of good works. And I want you to notice the language that he uses there because he says, let them learn to devote themselves to good works. Christian people are in part people who learn to devote themselves to good works. I think sometimes one of our problems is that we believe functionally that Just through the mere passage of time, we will become devoted to good works. If I have been saved by Jesus, if I kind of sit around and wait, eventually they'll start flowing through me. Wouldn't that be great? But that ain't how it works. The Bible says that God's people need to learn to devote themselves to good works, which means this truth this morning, if I could summarize it all in one statement, it would be this. We must learn to live the good life. The good life is not something that is just going to happen to you. It is not something that is just going to fall upon you when you wake up some morning. It is a learned behavior. If you want to be able to look back Uh, and see it as a life well-lived, if you want to be able to look back at your life and see it as a life well-lived, in spite of the difficulties and challenges that you face, the ups and downs that you face, it is going to be a learned behavior. It's something we devote ourselves to. And To be devoted to something is to be committed to something, to give something the focus of our time and energy. So how do we do that? How do you and I learn to live the good life according to the book of Titus? And I think the book of Titus, and you'll see this as we talk through this this morning if you've been with us because these themes have have showed up again and again throughout the letter. But I think there are three main ways in this book that we learn to live the good life. And I want you to perhaps conceptualize these three three ways that we learn to live the good life as three legs on a stool. If you've got a stool that has three legs on it that you're going to step up on, if it's going to support your weight so that you can reach higher, then you're going to need all three legs on that stool. You can't pick one or pick two. You need all three of those legs to work together. These three legs of the stool, as it were, support us in our pursuit of the good life. So let me walk through these with you in the time we have together this morning. How do we learn to live the good life? First of all, we learn to live the good life by the grace of God. We learn to live the good life, by the grace of God. What sets Christianity apart from every other philosophy, worldview, religion in all of human history, from all of time, is that it begins with God's work and not ours. That is one of the most important distinguishing features of christianity that you can wrap your mind and heart and arms around it begins with god's work and titus the book makes this clear in titus chapter 3 in verse 5 it says he god saved us how not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy The process of moral formation begins not with our own moral bootstrapping, but with God's mercy. And if you've been at our church for a while, and you've been trying to explore what it means to be a Christian, let me tell you, this is it. It means putting your faith in the work of Jesus on your behalf The message, the good news of the gospel is that you cannot, you must not bring your works to God and say, is this enough for me to be right with you? In fact, God, the Bible says that God hates all of our works that are intended to either gain or maintain his favor. The good news of the gospel makes us humble ourselves and say that there is absolutely nothing that I can do to receive God's grace. It is offered to me freely as a gift through his infinite divine mercy. So let me say to you this morning, if you're here with us and you don't know Christ, we would invite you in this very moment to repent of your sins and put your faith in the death Burial, resurrection, and saving work of Jesus. Nothing special has to happen. You can start talking to God about that right now and receive his mercy where you are. But here's the thing. One of the things that sometimes happens with us as Christians is we move on from the grace of God to what we think are bigger and better things and so there needs to be a daily receiving of God's grace that enables us to pursue good works I'll have it on the screen or you can look at it Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14 says this for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people Works. When you get a hold of those verses of Scripture, I promise it will revolutionize your life. I was well into adulthood before I really, really saw this passage for what it is. I had thought that, that renouncing ungodliness... Embracing godliness was something that I just had to knuckle down and work harder at it. And, and you've already heard me, heard me say, there is a training in godliness. But we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is the fuel that is going to enable me to do that? And if the fuel that is going to be enabling you to do that is within you, you're going to run out of fuel real quick. Because as I've said before, there are some things that are very easy for us to say no to. There is some ungodliness that is very easy for for me to renounce. I can renounce being a carjacker. I'm not going to do it. And I'm pretty sure I won't. Pretty sure. but I can't renounce pride because I'm as arrogant as they come. I can't just renounce faithlessness because there's some faithlessness in my heart. You see, when you won't get down to the nitty-gritty sins that whose roots are wrapped deeply around your heart and are are integrit- uh Something, some word I'm looking for tied into to your, your decision system and your, your affection system and the things that you live for and do, those things are a lot harder to renounce by your own efforts. And you're going to find yourself dealing with them again and again and again, which means that you are going to need a daily reminder of the grace of God on your behalf, which is why... People like Jerry Bridges, who passed away several years ago, would often say that the gospel is not the doorway to the Christian life the way we've normally conceived of it. What do you do when you walk through a doorway? You leave the doorway behind and you enter. And so Bridges would say that the the gospel is not the doorway to the Christian life. The gospel is the pathway of the Christian life which means if you are going to daily renounce the the, the roots of sin that have curled themselves around your heart, and if you are going to daily embrace dying to self and following the way of Jesus, then you are going to need dump truck loads of grace. And if you do not find yourself daily renouncing those things and daily embracing those things, Your problem is not, as some people might say, that you have too much grace. The problem is that you have too little. And so it is the grace of God that trains us, that teaches us to live the good life. It begins with that. It fuels that. So the question that I ask you this morning is, practically speaking, what would it look like for you in your life to be fueled by the grace of God? What, can, what steps could you take as a follower of Jesus to, to remove the gospel as kind of a background thing in your life and make it front and center, something that daily you live and, and, and breathe? Grace of Jesus. Why do you think we share the Lord's Supper over and over again? <laughs> we need to be reminded of the grace of Jesus. Alright. So remember, we're asking ourselves the question. We're thinking of of, of the good life. A life of godliness is this stool. We're asking how we learn to live the good life. We first of all learn to live the good life by the grace of God. Secondly, we learn to live the good life by the word of God. The word of God. We can see this thread of of the word of God that's woven into the fabric of this book from the very first verse. The very first verse says that there is a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The Bible makes it clear that godliness is connected to the knowledge of the truth which the Bible goes on to say has been, in verse 3, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. This is why one of the character qualifications for pastors that Titus was supposed to install in all of these communities, one of the char- one of the qualifications for pastors was that they hold fast themselves to the trustworthy word, be able to instruct people in it, and be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Why was that so important? Because God's life-giving word is the lifeblood of the good life. We can't live life as God intended without being deeply shaped by the word of God. Several years ago, I went through a guitar phase. How many of us have been through a guitar phase? Lots of people think, I'm going to learn to play the guitar. And you see that and you think, that looks pretty easy. <laughs> sorry, Joseph. <laughs> Carly, sorry. <laughs> you like think, so many people can play the guitar, I could probably play the guitar you imagine yourself in a dark coffee house being discovered as a (laughs) singer-songwriter. Where has this guy been? So I got a guitar, and I got a book on how to play the guitar. I got a cool hook where you could put the guitar up, and and when you rested the weight of it on, on the hook, a little thing would flip up to keep it safe. and It was hanging in my office at home, and... I thought my office looked cool, I want people to come in and see the office of a guy who has a guitar and can play it. And I got the guitar book out and started trying to play the guitar. And it's actually quite a bit harder than you think. (laughs) It does not sound like it sounds on YouTube in the lessons that I was doing. And it also hurts because your fingers are, are are tight on these, these strings. And so you, you have to get through that and develop the calluses so that you can learn the skill. And so guess who can't play the guitar? I've never sat in a dark coffee house. I'll never be discovered. I don't even have the guitar anymore. My point in in sharing that with you is I think sometimes the word can be like the guitar for us. I want to know it. I believe it's important. I imagine what I would be like if I was the kind of person that was really serious about the word. And so I get myself a nice study Bible or I listen to the things and I, I start doing it excitedly and then I realize this is harder than I thought. Have you ever tried to read through the whole Bible? There's some weird stuff in there. There's some stuff in there that doesn't make sense. There's a lot of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and we're like, how long are we going to do this? And so when the going gets tough, The word can kind of get hung back up, like the guitar. I'm going to be the person that has the word around, but I'm actually not deeply shaped by the word. I'm not devoted to it. I'm not committed to it. And and listen, friends, there's a danger for us, particularly as Christians living in the time and place that we do, where you can have the Bible read to you. You can read it for yourself. You can come to church and listen to it preached. You can listen to as much preaching as you want throughout the week from a variety of preachers. There are There is a Christian publishing industry which churns out book after book after book after book and we can have the Bible all around us and never actually be formed by it. And you can see that with Christians today where it's like, We've never had more Bible, and we've never been less like Jesus. This is not meant to be an academic exercise. This is not meant simply to be intellectual formation of you. We don't gather here on Sunday morning so that that you can take notes and make sure that you got all of the points and have it all right. If you take notes, I love that you take notes because it shows me that you're paying attention. So I'm not getting on our note-taking people. But, but if, the, if the word isn't getting into our hearts, then we're missing it. And, and that's actually the hard part. Anybody can get the three points. But it takes devotion to the word for it to work its way through us like a river that creates channels so that we think and feel and speak and love like Jesus. You and I cannot live the good life apart from the life-giving word. There's a third leg on this stool. We learn to live the good life by the grace of God. We learn to live the good life by the word of God. And then in the third place, we learn to live the good life by the people of God. The Christian community is an essential leg of the stool that is necessary to support the good life. And that may come as a surprise to us, because we are very individualistic. Remember, you and I are the product of a culture that we have not considered. And we are extremely individualistic. We think, I can learn to live the good life by reading this myself, journaling, prayer doing all the things that i need to do and we forget that element of the christian community but the christian community and the importance of the christian community is obvious in the book of titus titus is instructed to appoint pastors in these christian communities and one of the things that i pointed out several months ago and one of the things i pointed out even last week that one of the that that one of the things that strikes you as that the people that are supposed to be appointed to be pastors in these communities are supposed to have, or their, their primary qualifications are rooted around their character. Because the Lord doesn't want talking heads to deliver the word and read the teleprompter on Sunday morning. If that's what it was, then we just get the, the best person in the world to be the preacher. And then we just all watch that. But God in his wisdom has chosen not for it to be that way. You have to, we, we get the preacher speaking the word through a life. And of course that is, that is not and will not be a life of perfection but the church needs leaders with character. Men who don't have to be spectacular, but just love their wives well. <laughs> they don't have to be the greatest this or that, but they have to love people. They don't have to be able to attract thousands, but they do need to have self-control. Because it's... it's It's not just being a mouthpiece, it's being a model. Titus was a leader of pastors, and Paul told him this in chapter 2 and verse 7. He said, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Show them what it looks like. Furthermore, the older women are to play a pretty big part in the moral formation of younger women, according to Titus. Because in verses 3 and 4, he says, Older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Or in chapter 2 and verse 6, the older men are to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So do you see what I'm saying here? We do not just learn through taking notes. It is not just an academic exercise. We learn by example and instruction in other words we learn in the christian community in the article that i was referencing from david brooks earlier in the message brooks suggests that training the heart and body is more important than training the reasoning brain some moral skills can be taught the way academic subjects are imparted through books and lectures "...but we learn most virtues the way we learn crafts, through the repetition of many small habits and practices, all within a coherent moral culture, a community of common values." Let me say that again. "...we learn most virtues the way we learn crafts, through the repetition of many small habits and practices, all within a coherent moral culture, a community of common values. I wonder if any community like that exists. I think it's supposed to be the church. So when we think about how to accomplish discipleship and moral formation, we often think in terms of a class, and we have classes here. But we learn morality, we learn virtue, we learn to live the good life in the context of community. The Christian life is not just a science. And the Bible doesn't present it as a science. The Bible gives instructions for older women to train the younger women and, and, and older men to train the younger men, but it doesn't give all the details that would apply to every culture and every time for all of human history. There are so many variables that are there. So it's not a science. Christian living is sometimes an art. And there may be a part of us that says, well, whoa, that scares me. I don't like that idea because I, I need it to be spelled out. But the spirit does spell it out as the grace fuels us and the word guides us. And we see faithful Christian people passing down from generation to generation to generation what it looks like in each cultural moment to follow Jesus. And I would go so far as to say that we cannot cultivate the good life that God wants us to cultivate apart from the Christian community. So let me ask you the question How are you engaging with the Christian community? The example, that that, the the thing that we might immediately, well, we need to come up with a program for this then. (laughs) I'm not sure about that. I'm not against programs. But I do think that if, as Christian people who have the spirit within us, if we just ask the Lord to guide us by his spirit into the relationships that we can both receive and give, do you think he might answer that prayer? Do you think that we might put our, do a better job of putting ourselves into relationship with each other? Where we start taking the body metaphors of, of the scripture seriously? Where we don't say, I have no need of you? But we say, I desperately need God's people to show me what it looks like to faithfully live this incredibly difficult life. Those are the three legs of the stool that support the cultivation of virtue and ultimately the good life. The good life is not just going to come to us, friends. You are not going to wake up one morning magically transformed. Moral formation is going to come as we develop a few calluses on our fingers as we practice it, as we get it wrong, repent with each other and get it right and try again. But when you have a community of people who are devoted to good works, you have something that's far greater than Aristotle ever could have imagined with his eudaimonia. It is a beginning of a restoration of life as it should be. And it is anticipation of a life in Jesus that will be. Let's ask God to help us make it so. Lord, we confess to you, and I confess to you, that I am so often more discipled by my cultural values and expectations for life than I am by a Christian worldview. So I pray that you would help us as your people to recommit ourselves, to to devote ourselves to the pursuit of good works, to the pursuit of the good life protect us from pursuing it in self-righteous ways. We are so prone towards self-righteousness. So let us daily remember our need for the mercy and grace of our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would make us here at CBC a people who are deeply formed Christians, who think, who feel, and act, and speak, and do in ways that look like our Savior. If there is someone here this morning who has not received the grace of Jesus, would you open the eyes of their heart to receive the good news, and to experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.